I wonder what you've been obsessing over lately, what you've been thinking about, where your mind has been fixed, on what you've been focused. If you're anything like me, it's very easy for those things that you think about and obsess over to be things that are challenging, things that aren't quite right things that didn't go quite as well as you had hoped, concerns about the political climate in which you find yourself, and frustrations with what's going on at a geopolitical level, or far more personally, just a bad relationship, or a relationship that you want to be good but just isn't, or a thing that you've said or done in the last couple of weeks that you just wish hadn't come out of your mouth, or hadn't kind of happened in the way that it did. Or maybe it's a looming deadline of something that's facing you that you don't really feel up for the task, up to the task. And so it just continues to have this cloud. It's like this cloud over your life. It's so easy to be thinking about and obsessing over and dwelling upon those things in our world and in our lives that are difficult, that are hard, that are broken, that just aren't right. And there are a lot of those things in a world that is tainted with sin. And it's easy as we do that to become so discouraged in our lives, disheartened. As we turn to Hebrews again this morning, we are in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and I invite you to turn there with me. We get an incredibly powerful pastoral word that addresses all of us who are tempted and prone to focus on the mess. There was a lot of mess in the recipients, in the lives of the recipients of this letter. We don't know a lot about them, but we know that they had experienced real suffering as followers of Jesus. That they had, at one time, chapter 10 tells us, accepted the plundering of their possessions. And this word that the preacher gives in this little section that we're considering is the the pastoral heart of this letter, aiming at the ongoing endurance of God's people. It's the arrow that pierces through the entire sermon. So verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. This could be translated, fix your thoughts on Jesus. It's as if he's saying, look, I know you're tempted to give up. I know it's easy to step off the narrow, but at times so painfully hard road that leads to life. I know it's easy to escape the battle by embracing diversions and distractions, inoculating yourselves from the parts of life that are hard through entertainment and pleasure. I know that you can get cynical and disillusioned by how parts of the church seem to stand for things that you think Jesus doesn't stand for, or by how divided that the church appears to be. I know it's so easy for you to get discouraged. I know that you wish God would be more forthcoming in your life with the powerful awareness of his presence and comfort and encouragement. But in light of all of this, in face of all these temptations and the struggles in your heart and your soul with whether you can keep going today or tomorrow, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Stop, that is. Stop obsessing over all the stuff that's wrong. 
Stop dwelling upon all the things that haven't gone right. Stop worrying about it and being consumed by everything that you thought you should be but are not yet in your life that gets you down. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Consider him. According to this letter, this sermon, Hebrews, this is a key and perhaps the key to living a life of endurance. And the implicit corollary of this exhortation is that if we do not consider Jesus, if we lose sight of him and of his supreme example of faithfulness and all that he's accomplished, if we focus on and dwell on all the broken and difficult aspects of our lives, and bracket here, I'm not saying that we don't think about those things by any means. The beauty of being a follower of Jesus is that we can face everything and be honest about everything. So don't hear this and think we're we're thinking about escapism. But if we dwell upon and mull over and those things become that which we are fixed on, then the likelihood of faithful endurance substantially decreases in our lives. So where are you focused? On what do you dwell? On whom are you dwelling? In these six verses, we see two reasons to hear and heed this exhortation. And we'll consider those in turn. Why consider Jesus? Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Do you see what the preacher is doing in this verse? He reaffirms the identity of his hearers. And that's the first reason to heed this exhortation. Because of who you are, consider Jesus. So, So who are they? Who are we? Those first three words, therefore, holy brothers. Those point us back to the previous section where brotherhood is a key theme. In that section that we looked at last week, the preacher focuses on the son's identification with us in his incarnation. He was made for a little while lower than the angels. He was made like us in every way, and so he is able to call us brothers. And he sanctifies us, sets us apart, makes us holy for the salvation which he accomplished through his suffering and death. So we are holy, set apart, brothers and sisters, defined by our shared relationship to our elder brother Jesus and by what he has done for us. And then what does he say? You who share in a heavenly calling, because of our identification with Jesus as his brothers, we share in this heavenly calling. What is that? It's a calling to glory, to be restored as God's image bearers to that glorious place over creation for which you and I were made as God's image bearers, about which Psalm 8 speaks so wonderfully that the preacher quotes in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 2. In other words, Jesus, our elder brother and trailblazer, has gone on ahead of us into glory. He is crowned with glory and honor. He said in, verse, in chapter 2, the Father sent him as a forerunner so that through him he might bring many sons to glory. That's chapter 2, verse 10. In other words, this is our path. This is our trajectory, our heavenly calling, and we are now to follow Jesus to glory by faith, a theme that will become the theme of the book of Hebrews that the preacher will pick up directly in the next section. 
enduring through the trials of the present so that we might arrive at future glory. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, the effect of this emphasis in these opening remarks on our, is, uh, this emphasis on our Jesus-shaped identity and our Jesus-determined destiny is an overwhelming sense of blessing, of gift, of favor, and of privilege. Unworthy, undeserving, easily distracted people like us, we are holy brothers and sisters on the road to glory. Can you believe it? Until we're drenched by the torrent of God's grace and mercy that is poured out upon us in Jesus Christ, no exhortation to stand firm, to endure, to consider Jesus, to refrain from greed or lust or selfish ambition or whatever, will ever really land in our hearts. But reminded that we are what we are by, in, and through Jesus, because he, our elder brother, is our pioneer, our liberator, our mediator, our high priest, we are ready in humility and joy to heed this particular exhortation. Consider Jesus. Fix your thoughts on him. Do you know who you are? Really? Does your life and your heart and your mind resonate with a deep sense of being blessed? That's the first step in the Christian life. And one that we never get beyond. To our great peril and to the delight of our enemy, our true identity as those who are blessed by God, as brothers and sisters of Jesus, is regularly challenged and undermined. That is, I would say, the big challenge of our age, of our day, of our culture, where identity has become a thing that we must go out and create and make and find and build through our own grit and effort and and selection of what we're going to pull from. But the beauty and the glory of the gospel is that we have been given a gift. We've received an identity as brothers and sisters of Jesus, sharers on this road to glory, destined for this uh, this restoration of all that we were created to be. We are not our work. We are not what we have accomplished. We are not our failures. We are not what has been done to us. We are not what we have done to others. Those things do not define us. Those things need not contain, uh, 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 detain our thinking and consume our emotions. We all know that when we are those things that I've just listed, when those things are primary, our thoughts become fixed on all kinds of other realities, most of which can discourage us deeply. Verse 1 says, because of Jesus, you're a holy brother or sister on the road to glory. So let's consider him. Let's fix our thoughts on him who has made us who we are, who has given us a destiny and a future.
by sheer grace and gift. But the primary reason for heeding and hearing this exhortation is not who we are, where the preacher begins in verse 1, but rather it's who Jesus is. And these two things work deeply together to make this a really powerful exhortation. Look back at verse 1. We haven't gotten out of verse 1 yet. Jesus, the apostle, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, the sent by God one, the mediator of blessing, who is at the center of all that we confess and profess to a watching world. Jesus, consider him, verse 2, who was faithful to him who appointed him. The accent here, consider Jesus, is on his faithfulness. Think about it for a moment. What is the preacher wanting to encourage in those who read this letter? He wants to encourage a life of faithful endurance, of not giving up of staying the course, of running the race with endurance that God has set before you, not the race you chose, but the one that he's put in front of you. That's what he wants. And so what does he say? Consider Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Jesus, our elder brother, is the supreme example. He is not only an example, as I trust we've just made clear, but he is the supreme example of this kind of faithful endurance. He ran the race, the grueling, hard, God-forsaken race to the cross with great endurance, being obedient even to the point of death. And through faithfulness, he entered into his present glory. Jesus didn't shrink back or give up or give in. Rather, he was faithful in his fiery trials. So consider him. Fix your eyes on him. Fix your thoughts on him as you wrestle and struggle in the life that God has called you to live. We'll be encouraged later in the the epistle in chapter 11, with probably the most well-known chapter of of this sermon, to dwell upon the examples of others who were faithful. But the preacher clearly wants to, our focus, both there as he finishes in the beginning of chapter 12 upon Jesus, and here, he wants our focus to be on Jesus. Why? Because in his faithfulness, Jesus is greater than any other faithful servant of God to have come before him. Any previous mediator or prophet or apostle or leader, even the great Moses. And that's where he goes in verse 2. In verse 2, he makes the comparison. He says, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. But in verse 3, the preacher begins to draw a distinction between Jesus and Moses and says, Jesus, no, has been counted worthy of greater, of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. And then in verses 5 and 6, he explains why. He says, Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house, but Jesus was faithful as a son over God's house. The son is greater than the servant. The servant serves in, the son serves over. And that preposition makes a big difference. To appreciate this comparison for just a moment, consider what Moses' faithfulness accomplished in his role as mediator of the covenant between God and his people. All of this gets communicated to us in the book of Exodus. But three things, clearly. First, Moses led God's people out of their bondage. That is, Moses was the agent of salvation in the people of God's history. 
He stood up to Pharaoh on God's behalf and let God, let, and, and through that standing up, God's people were set free and let go. They were rescued out of slavery and bondage. Moses, and this is the quotation that gets picked up twice that the, the preacher's playing on here out of Numbers 12, which we read earlier. Moses mediates the word of God to the people of God. On Sinai, he hears God speak and the tablets he brings down, the 10 words that define the covenant relationship between God and the people that he has rescued. And then in Numbers 12, which gets picked up here, it says this again, hear my words. This is Yahweh speaking to Aaron and Miriam who have challenged Moses' unique standing and authority among the people of God. Hear my words, Yahweh says. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. There's nobody like him. No prophet like him. No one is like him. He speaks to me mouth to mouth. He beholds my form and he delivers the life-giving words to you. And presence, the very presence of God. The last 15 chapters of the book of Exodus are Moses overseeing and standing over the process of building what? The tabernacle. So what? So the holy, awesome, creator, redeemer God could actually dwell among a sinful people. So the very presence of God, without which Israel knew they were not distinct from the nations around them, but with which they knew that that guaranteed everything about who they were and their sense of blessing. And so Moses builds the tabernacle so God's presence can reside. These were tremendous blessings. Salvation, the word, the life-giving word, the presence, the life-giving presence of God coming through this mediator Moses. But then think for a moment what verse 5 says. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Why? To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. All of these great things that Moses did, all of this magnificence of Moses' uh, work as mediator, they were all just pointing to something else. They were all pointing to something that would come later. And so we get in Jesus the Son a new and better covenant, a much greater salvation, not from, from Pharaoh and Egypt, but from the, death, from, from the devil and sin and death and evil. Jesus liberates us as his, as his people. We get a much clearer word. Jesus himself, the word, who was with God and was God. Jesus coming among us. And we get a much stronger and clearer presence. Jesus, in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, becomes flesh and dwells among us. Greater salvation, greater presence, greater word. All of this is greater. Jesus has accomplished a far greater thing. And so because he is greater than Moses, he has received much more glory. He's greater than David, greater than Samuel, greater than Jonah, our reading from Matthew 12 said, greater than Solomon, than Elijah or Isaiah. He is greater than all. Jesus has no rival. He is the greatest of all time. So consider him. Dwell upon him. Fix your thoughts on him, the faithful son, whose faithfulness is both an example to us like Moses and others, but is also uniquely and one of a kind, the ground of our very life and identity. 
And as he gets to verse 6, he affirms that identity again and says, we are his house. That is, we are the work of Jesus' hands. We are the reason that he came down as a son and became made a little lower than the angels to bless us, to forgive us, to renew us, to rescue us, to restore us to our created purpose, to reconcile us to him and our Father and to one another, to enable us to become sons and daughters of the Creator God, to put us on the road to glory. We are his house. I'll deal with that exhortation, or we'll deal with it next time, or at the end of chapter 6, as it sort of transitions, transitions into the next part of chapter 3. Consider him. Closing with a few practical thoughts, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, The real problem of the Christian life comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back, in listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in, and so on all day. Standing back from all your natural fussings and frettings, coming in out of the wind. What are you obsessing over? What are you dwelling upon? What are your thoughts fixed upon? What are those things that come rushing at your mind when you come to, for the first moment, lying down in bed? Consider him. One of the small practices that I've had over the last probably eight months or so is that when I come to in bed, the first thing I think of in my head is Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love, embodied, of course, in Jesus, is better than life. My lips will praise you. It's been helpful. It's a small thing. But it's been really helpful to me, and I would commend a kind of practice like that to you. Instead of checking your phone, instead of reading your email, Instead of making a to-do list for the day, consider Jesus. Fix your thoughts upon him. We have in our tradition what's called the daily office. These set times of prayer throughout the day. And it's not a rule, to be clear, so if you've never done this, that's okay. It's a tool, though, and it's a good one to help us consider Jesus. These regular moments in the morning, at noontime, in the evening, and then as the last thing before we go to bed. To stop, to put all those other thoughts out of our mind, and just to consider this King who loves you, who calls you his brother, and who has put you on the road to glory. And just to sit in his presence, 
That's the beauty, that's the wisdom of a kind of routine and regularity that the daily office encourages in our lives, that we might consider Jesus. And it's no surprise to me, this is the last practical thing in terms of just what you think of when you wake up, and then this regular practice of the daily office. It's no surprise that the author of Hebrews comes back in chapter 10 and says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's not surprising in the slightest that that in the letter that encourages us to endure, he also says, don't neglect the habit of gathering with other people, with your brothers and sisters in the faith, and letting them speak the words of life to you, letting them hold up Jesus to you, letting them speak over you words of forgiveness and love and warmth and identity that you are not what you do, but you are first and foremost who God has declared you to be. We desperately need one another to be pointed there, to consider Jesus. What are you obsessing over right now? Holy brothers and sisters, on the road to glory, consider Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. And so be encouraged. Be challenged. And know that you are blessed. You belong to him. Amen.